What's up? This is Jonathan Smith, your host here at Shooting the Schmidt. I hope you're having a fantastic day. I've got an absolutely loaded podcast for you today. We're talking Drew Holiday to the Celtics that officially happened. Then we're going to get into college football. The SEC, why is it down this year? Why has it been down these past couple of years? And finally, we'll wrap it up with a little NFL talk. The Bills, are they the best team in the AFC? We're going to get into it. Like I said, it's a loaded show. You're going to enjoy it. Here we go. Holiday is officially a member of the Boston Celtics. The Boston Celtics sent Robert Williams, Malcolm Brogdon, Golden State's 2024 first round pick, which is top four protected, and a 2029 unprotected first round pick of their own to acquire the point guard from the Portland Trailblazers. Holiday quickly goes from Milwaukee to Portland to Boston. The Trailblazers, they're pretty adamant about moving Holiday quickly. Once they acquired him from Milwaukee, he's now found himself back on another title contender. I'm really excited for this. Holiday is going to be tasked with fulfilling the role that Marcus Smart had. So basically, he's replacing Marcus Smart. I'll be honest, I think he's better than Marcus Smart, especially on the offensive side of the ball. Um, Marcus Smart obviously trading, or Marcus Smart was obviously traded earlier in the season by the Boston Celtics to acquire Kristaps Porzingis. People are excited about the move, FanDuel. It now has both the Celtics and the Bucks as the favorites to win the title, both at plus 380 with this move. People have very quickly declared the Boston Celtics is the best team in the Eastern Conference. They think with this move, with the addition of Drew Holiday, they are now better than the Bucks, who recently acquired Damian Lillard, in case you hadn't heard. I don't know if that's really quite the case, but before we get into that, let's talk about the Trailblazers here really quickly. Um, man, the Blazers, they got quite quite the haul for Damian Lillard. Okay, They're walking away with DeAndre Ayton and Robert Williams III, Malcolm Brogdon, who they're probably going to trade, Tumani Kamara, a 2029 first-round pick from Milwaukee, unprotected, the right to pick swaps in 2028 and 2030 with the Milwaukee Bucks, a 2029 first-round pick from the Celtics, that's unprotected, and a 2024 first-round pick from the Warriors, which is protected 1-4. through four. That is quite a haul of young players, and that's three first-round picks along with two pick swaps. Okay, both DeAndre Ayton and Robert Williams are both only 25. Kamara's a 23-year-old rookie. You know, as I said, three first-round picks as well with the pick swaps. If they can develop Shaden Sharp and Scoot Henderson, then here in the next three or four years, this could be a really, really good basketball team. Okay, and for the first time in his tenure, Chauncey Billups actually has something to work with outside of Damian Lillard in Portland. I'm really excited to see what kind of a coach he is because it's just been really hard to tell because they've had one guy and like that's really been it. And I'll be honest, when you look at this team starting five, they could be actually kind of tough. Okay, you're going to have Scoot Henderson, a guy who people expect to come in and contribute immediately and end up being a star at some point. You've got Shaden Sharp, who we saw some flashes from at the end of last year. you got Jeremy Grant, who they extended in the offseason. I think they're going to play Robert Williams and DeAndre Ayton together, especially since, you know, Ayton can step out and hit that 15-foot jump shot. But also, I mean, they need some help defensively if they're going to play Ayton at the 5. You put Robert Williams, let him roam off ball, and he's going to be one of the best rim protectors in the league. It is a young and talented starting five, okay? Especially if Henderson adjusts to the NBA as quickly as people expect him to, 
then this could be a just like this could be a fun team to watch this year. Okay, like like top five league pass team, easily. They're going to be a lot of fun to watch. Great haul for the Trailblazers. But let's get into why you came. Who's the best team in the Eastern Conference? Who should you be putting your money on to represent the Eastern Conference in the NBA Finals and potentially even win the NBA Finals? Because I don't think it's much of a question that both the Bucks and the Celtics are the two best teams in the Eastern Conference. Sorry, Philly, you're not as good as the Celtics or Bucks are, even if James Harden comes around to playing. Not as good as they are. Sorry, Miami. I don't want to write you off because you're Miami and you're coached by Eric Spolstra and every year we expect you to not be very good and then for some reason you play in the NBA Finals. That's just kind of how it works, I guess, when you live in South Beach. But talent-wise, you cannot deny that both the Celtics and Bucks are hands down the best teams in the Eastern Conference. Okay. Now, as I mentioned earlier at the start of the segment, People believe that the Celtics have leaped over the Bucks for the preseason title of best Eastern Conference team, and I don't believe that's the case. Okay, let's start with the lack of front court depth with the Boston Celtics. Okay, it's Porzingis who he'll he'll definitely stay healthy, and Al Horford who is 37, followed by Luke Cornett who got some minutes last year, and Nemias Quida. And if you're not a committed Celtics fan, you don't know who that is. Okay, There is a major lack of depth in their front court. And to get through the Eastern Conference, you have to have players who can, who can compete with guys like Joel Embiid and Giannis Antetokounmpo. You have to have that, and the Celtics don't. Robert Williams was a large part of that last year. Okay, He was their rim protector. Now he's gone. He's in Portland. And you got Porzingis and Horford, who were capable of doing this, but do we really trust them to be healthy? Okay, in Porzingis' 10-year career, he's played 60 games three times. That's it. Two of those times were his rookie year and his second year in the league. So the last eight years, he's only played 60 games once. That's it. Al Horford, at age 36 last season, was pretty good. Do we really think we're going to get that from him again? Do we? Okay, like at some point, Al Horford isn't going to be good enough to run out there in a playoff series. And that could potentially be this year, given his age and how many minutes he's played, you know, over his, you know, 17-year career. That sounds right. Okay, the legs holding up the Celtics' front court are shaky at best. And in the Eastern Conference, where a team needs at least a decent front court, the Celtics don't have it. But that isn't the main reason as to why I don't believe that the Celtics are better than the Bucks. That is merely the appetizer as to why I believe the Celtics are not better than the Bucks. The lack of front court depth isn't the sole reason because let's be honest, the NBA is all about one thing and that is stars. Okay, and especially with the way that the league is now, it's about who your two best players are. When we look at who won the NBA finals last year, the Denver Nuggets, Jamal Murray and Nikola Jokic were the best duo in the league. They were, and that is why they won the title. Okay, We spent all this time talking about role players and how important they are. You need role players. Sure, I guess. You know, you know what you really need? You need Giannis Antetokounmpo on your team. You need Damian Lillard on your team. You need LeBron James on your team. You need Anthony Davis. No, you need Steph Curry and Klay Thompson. No, you need 
fill in the blank with any two stars. That is what you need. And then you hope that you have a couple role guys who can step up from time to time. Because ultimately, 75% of the game is going to be played with the basketball in your two best players' hands. That's, just, that's how it works. That's how it is. And when we look at Boston, time and time again, we've seen Jason Tatum Jalen Brown come up short. Okay, They're both approaching their late 20s now. They should take another leap at some point. Pretty normal for guys to kind of have that early leap you know, between 20 and 22, and then they kind of stay the same. And then around the age 28, we see guys make another leap as they enter, you know, their physical prime, and that's when guys start winning championships. Usually, not always, but that's usually how it works. And my question is, let's say they both make the leap this year, is it going to be enough? Is it going to be enough to beat Damian Lillard, who's one of the best point guards in the NBA? And one of the big you know, argumentative points when it comes to Milwaukee is Dame Lillard on defense, right? And because he struggles defensively and he's a smaller guard and he's a little bit older and all those things. But look, we've seen teams win NBA championships with point guards who don't play great defense. Let's look at the Golden State Warriors who've won four four titles with Steph Curry who isn't exactly an all-NBA level defender. Okay, they had Draymond Green and Klay Thompson pick up the slack defensively, and they got it done. You really want to sit here and tell me that Chris Middleton and Giannis can't pick up the slack defensively for Damian Lillard? Because they can. Okay, as long as Lillard is willing to give an effort, which he should be able to do, considering he's never played on a contender before. This is his first year on a legitimate contender. I would hope that he could put forth the effort to play a little bit of defense you know, when the summer months come and we're in the playoffs. Okay, and when we look at it, plain and simply, Lillard and Giannis are a better duo than Tatum and Brown, and that is why I like the Bucks more than I like the Celtics heading into the 2023 NBA season. Okay, as I said earlier, we get caught up in talking about role players and how important they are and all these type of things. And look, they are important. You need some other guys who can make shots. But ultimately, the reason why teams win the win the finals is because they have a great player or great players. Okay, and the Milwaukee Bucks, quite simply, they could have the best duo in the league this year. And if they do, then how do you not pick them to win the finals? Give me these give me the Bucks to win the Eastern Conference over the Boston Celtics. We're gonna take a short break. We come back, we're going to get into a little bit of SEC college football. Got an interesting take for you. I think you're going to enjoy it. Don't don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with more Shooting with Schmidt. In the last 17 years, since 2006, an SEC team has won the national championship game 13 times. And as a person who roots for an SEC football team, I love to throw this in people's face. People often tie the success of the SEC to the natural pool of talent that is around them. Okay, They live in rich recruiting areas. They have access to Florida and Texas, which are two of the three best football states in the country. Alabama puts out a lot of talent. Georgia puts out a lot of talent. It is a place where you can go and recruit athletes and be awesome, as we've seen over the last 17 years. But there is so much more to having a dominant conference, at least a conference as dominant as the SEC has been, 
than just where your campus is located. And over the past few years, we have seen the very slow decline of the SEC. And that's because most of the good coaches have left. In today's SEC, only two of the top college football coaches in the country or in the conference. There's Nick Saban at Alabama and Kirby Smart at Georgia, who are the top two college football coaches in the country. I don't think that you can deny that. The other top coaches, like Jim Harbaugh, Ryan Day, Lincoln Riley, Dabo Sweeney, Kyle Whittingham, Luke Fickle, James Franklin, Sonny Dykes, I can keep going. They don't coach in the SEC. Mike Norvell, Kalen DeBoyer, and Dan Lanning, those are three of the best young coaches in the country. Guess what? They don't coach in the SEC. Okay, while the other conferences have continued to hire good head coaches like the Pac-12 has, you see the resurgence they've had this season, it's because those programs have hired really good head coaches. The SEC has not. They haven't hired other good head coaches. They're Saban and Smart who carry on the legacy of the SEC because they keep winning national championships. Meanwhile, the rest of the conference continues to get worse. Okay? I mean, like, after Saban and Smart, I mean, you, there's just, there's not great coaches. At least not like there used to be, you know, in like the early 2010s when the SEC was really at its peak. You know, like, you remember the days when Urban Meyer was at Florida, Right, Nick Saban was at LSU or Alabama, and Mark Rick, he was really good at Georgia. They won 10 games a year. Okay, and then you had Bobby Petrino at Arkansas, who was winning 9, 10 games a year. You had Dan Mullen at Mississippi State, who had Mississippi State as the number one ranked team in the country. And you had Steve Spurrier, who spent some time at Florida. And then and, you know, he was also at South Carolina. He's the winningest coach in well. He has the highest win percentage in South Carolina history. Gus Malzahn is both the offensive coordinator and head coach at Auburn. They were really, really good. You had Les Miles at LSU. They were really good. You had Philip Fulmer at Tennessee. I, we can keep going. Okay, There were other good coaches in the conference outside of the top two or three, and it just isn't like that anymore. And that is why the SEC isn't as good as it used to be. That's why they don't dominate like they used to. We have disappointments at the head coaching position in the SEC. Okay, If you heard that your school hired Jimbo Fisher or Brian Kelly, you'd get really excited, and rightfully so, because those are big names in the game of college football. Jimbo Fisher won a national championship at Florida State you know, almost a decade ago now. Brian Kelly had a lot of success at Notre Dame, and Jimbo Fisher has underachieved at Texas A&M, and I think through two years, Brian Kelly isn't living up to the expectations that the LSU fan base has. Okay, let's start with the best thief in the country, Jimbo Fisher, who's making $9 million a year to go 8-4 and four in the regular season consistently. That's an absolute robbery, especially... When you consider how well they've recruited at A&M and how much money the boosters have put into the NIL fund. Okay, this is a program that should win 10 games a year at a minimum. And in five years of Jimbo Fisher, they haven't done it once. They went 5-7 and seven last year. Okay, currently they're sitting at 4-1 and one with a game against Alabama this week. They still have to play Tennessee and Ole Miss both on the road. They could easily finish at 8 and 4 again. Okay, coaches in the SEC like Jimbo Fisher, a guy 
who should be adding to the dominance of the SEC. He simply hasn't done it. He lost at Miami. You know, one of the, like, like an average ACC team earlier this year. Like, how does that happen? It shouldn't happen. Especially when you look at everything that Texas A&M has resource-wise. Once again, it's more than just the recruiting grounds. You have to have good coaches if you want to have a good conference. Let's look at LSU and Brian Kelly. LSU threw a lot of money at Kelly to get him to leave Notre Dame. And when it happened, we heard the exact same thing over and over again. Wait until Brian Kelly has SEC athletes. It was such a popular statement, I couldn't stand it when people said it. And now guess what? He has the SEC athletes. But the expectations at LSU aren't being met. Now, don't get me wrong, he's doing better than Jimbo Fisher is at Texas A&M, but LSU expects national titles. And LSU doesn't look like a national title team. Okay, They got beat in the SEC title game last year by Georgia pretty handily. They got crushed by Florida State week one this year. They barely beat Arkansas, and now they and they lost Ole Miss this last week. And they can't defend the pass. What happened to DBU? What happened to defensive back university? Kelly shows up, and all of a sudden, the very identity of which LSU clings to isn't there. And that has to change. Now, look, LSU's good this year. They were good last year. But good doesn't cut it in Baton Rouge. It doesn't. He's been disappointing in his first two years. And people are like, well, Jonathan, he played you know, for an SEC championship game in year one. How was that disappointing? It's disappointing because they had the talent to be better. And they weren't. Once again, it comes back to coaching. It's not just about your campus's location and how well you can recruit. And then in the SEC... The identity's changed. And part of that is because the identity of college football has changed. You know, the SEC used to be known for these great defenses, and now we have coaches like Josh Heupel and Lane Kiffin who've put together these high-powered offenses in a short amount of time at Tennessee and Ole Miss. You know, Tennessee was a potential college football playoff team last year before Hendon Hooker left, or got hurt, excuse me. And Ole Miss could be a playoff team this year if they went out. But neither one of these coaches have built stout defenses in their time at their respective schools. And we've seen it you know, with Lincoln Riley over the years at Oklahoma and now at USC. If you can't play at least a little bit of defense, then you're not winning the college football playoff. You're not going to win a game in the college football playoff. Okay, And as smart as these two coaches are offensively, it's hard to classify them as elite coaches or even in the class below elite coaches because it's almost impossible to win on offense alone, even in a sport that is all about offense. Okay, you can win on defense alone in college football. We've seen Kirby Smart and Nick Saban do it. If Kiffin or Heupel ever want to elevate themselves, elevate their programs, and elevate the SEC, then they are got to figure out that side of the ball. Okay, and then there's also a lot of average coaches in the SEC. Mark Stoops and Eli Drinkowitz, they've both gotten their teams off to these 5-0 and starts, and there's momentum at Missouri University. There's momentum in Lexington, but i got to be honest, I have no faith in either one of these teams to ever make the college football playoff, even though they have both started 5-0. and I'll be honest, I don't trust either one of these programs to do this again next year in terms of starting 5-0. and Okay, when we look at Mark Stoops at Kentucky, he's had some really good years, but they're usually hovering, hovering around the 500 mark. That's the, the kind of program that Kentucky is. When we look at Drinkwitz, in three years, he's gone 5-5 five and five once. That was his first year at Missouri. And he went 6-7 and seven these last two years. That's very average. They are both average coaches at universities that are okay with being average at football. And the SEC 
isn't going to return to the dominance that SEC fans think that they're at on the backs of Drinkowitz and Stoops. It's not going to happen, especially if they stay at Kentucky and Missouri. Okay, and here's the thing. Jonathan, how do you know that they aren't elite coaches? I know this because if they were, then Florida, LSU, or Auburn would have come running to hire them in recent years. Okay? There's a little bit of hope, though, in terms of adding to the Alabama and Georgia-loaded SEC conference, and that comes in the form of Hugh Freeze. It's year one of Hugh Freeze at Auburn. It's also year one of Zach Arnett at Mississippi State. Not as high on him. But everyone knows that Hugh Freeze is an excellent coach who's won in the SEC before. Okay, We're just going to ignore all the recruiting violations and everything that came with those wins. Either way, though, he won at Liberty, recruited decent talent to Liberty. He can coach and should be able to build a good program at Auburn. Because, look, let's be like, Auburn hasn't been relevant since Gus Malzahn left, and that was four years ago. Okay? Like, Hugh Freeze, like, he he, he can get it done there. And I, I think that he will. He should be able to add to the powerhouses of Nick Saban and Kirby Smart, even though Nick Saban's probably going to be gone within the next five years. Okay? The man's 70-plus years old. Retirement's got to come at some point, right? Let's, let's look at Mississippi State, who hired Zach Arnett. He was the defensive coordinator under Mike Leach, who sadly passed away unexpectedly. He's the youngest head coach in the SEC, and he's never been a head coach in college before. So it's going to be uh, they're off to a rough start in, uh, in, in, in Starkville. His first two years at Mississippi State as the defensive coordinator, he was nominated for the Broyles Award twice, so we know he can coach the, the defensive side of the football. We'll see if he can return Mississippi State to the days of Dan Bullen and Dak Prescott. I doubt it, but we'll see. Um, like, But I, I doubt it, though. And then finally, we've got these three coaches who are just waiting to be fired. Billy Napier, Shane Beamer, Sam Pittman, they're just waiting for it to happen. Okay, if it doesn't happen this year for these guys, then it'll probably happen next year unless they put together some sort of outstanding season. Billy Napier coaches at Florida. They have some of the highest expectations of any program in the country. Okay, the start of SEC dominance began with them and Urban Meyer. The days of Tim Tebow were flat-out amazing. Okay, since then, the head coaching position, it's changed multiple times. It keeps on revolving. It's a revolving door. Okay, they've gone from Will Muschamp to Jim McElwain to Dan Mullen, who everybody thought would be the answer. Then he was like, I don't want to recruit, and now he does TV. And now they're at Billy Napier. He's not the answer. They're 500 through 18 games under Napier, and that's not going to get it done. Okay, Dan Mullen won 70% of his games in four years, and he got fired. Okay, Napier has, he's got a lot to rebuild because, as I said, Mullen didn't recruit very well because he didn't want to. There are deficiencies on the roster. But this is a new era of college football where you can plug holes really quickly with this transfer portal. Okay, if Florida doesn't finish this year strong after they just got trounced by Kentucky, that's unacceptable in Gainesville. You can't get beat by Kentucky and coach in Gainesville. It just it doesn't happen. And Napier doesn't turn it around. I mean, like he, he could be gone. Florida's going to be looking for a new coach soon. That's just the way that it feels. Moving on to South Carolina and Shane Beamer. Did you know that Steve Spurrier is the only coach in the history of South Carolina football to have a winning percentage over 64%? It is hard to win at South Carolina, especially now that Clemson's really good. And Shane Beamer, he's learning that. Five games into the into year three under Beamer, the Gamecocks are two and three, and there's a decent chance they don't make a bowl game. They still got to play Florida. They still got to play Missouri. They got to play Kentucky, and they still have to play Clemson. 
And with the transfer portal changing college football and making it possible to rebuild a roster quickly, if a coach can't find success within the first three years, then it's only fair for the school to be like, look, you can't recruit the transfer portal, which is becoming, I guess, the key to winning in college sports. Why shouldn't they move on? They have every right to fire somebody if they can't build a winner within the first three years. Okay? And, like, they could miss a bowl game in year three under Beamer. Like, that's a fireable offense. It is. Sam Pittman, he's in a really similar boat at Arkansas. Okay, it's his fourth year as the head coach of the Arkansas Razorbacks, and they probably aren't going to make a bowl game this year either. Okay, they went 7-6 and six last year after going 9-4 and four in his second year as head coach. He simply hasn't brought in the talent to win in the SEC. Okay, the one year he did well, he won with Chad Morris's recruits, who was the head coach before him. He came in with the reputation as one of the best offensive line coaches in the country, and you think, oh, they're going to be good in the trenches. Guess what? They haven't been very good in the trenches. They still have to play Alabama, Ole Miss, Florida, and Missouri. They're 2-3 and three right now. Good luck making a bowl. It's a tough schedule. Okay, and if they do, they're going to go like 6-6. Six and six. Okay, Pittman's time at Arkansas is almost up. If he doesn't get fired at the end of this year, then it'll probably happen next. Okay, and this isn't just a principle applied to college football in the SEC. If you want to win at any college sport, you have to hire a good head coach who can both recruit and coach games. Okay, because the SEC as a whole, they used to have that. They don't have that anymore. And that's why they've declined to this point where they're probably the second or third best conference in the sport. Okay, unless they bring in more quality head coaches, then they aren't going to return to the, t- to the t- We aren't going to see what we saw from them, you know, four, five, six years ago. We're going to take a short break. Come back. I've got a short thing on the NFL, and then we're going to wrap it up. Well, I'll be right back with more Shooting the Schmidt. So about a week and a half ago, I was watching the Pat McAfee show because I live in Indianapolis, and when the Pat McAfee show comes on, by law, everyone is required to stop what they're doing and watch his show because it's great. (laughs) And during the show, he was doing an interview with Nick Saban, he and his, you know, whole crew of guys and I gotta be honest whenever Nick Saban the goat speaks like I I want to listen I want to hear what he has to say and McAfee asked him how often he gets in the trenches and really coaches his players like how involved is he in practice at correcting mistakes and things like that as opposed to just managing kind of like what most head coaches do now if you didn't know this Nick Saban played defensive back at Kent State so defensive backs are his thing And he claims that he coaches them as often as he can because he, in his own words, he said, quote, he wants to be his best assistant. Okay? And it makes a lot of sense. And he went into this whole thing about how before he was a head coach, he was a great assistant, which helped his team tremendously. And he wants to continue to be his best assistant because that helps the team. All of these head coaches used to be great at something else. That is why they are now head coaches. And when we look at the NFL, because I think this applies to both college football and the NFL, we see a lot of offensive-minded coaches be their best assistants by calling the plays for the offense, right? Kyle Shanahan, Mike McDaniel, Sean McVay, Andy Reid, so on and so forth. So on and so forth to a point where 16 of 32 NFL head coaches call the plays for the offense. 
because like that's what these guys do. That's what they did before they were head coaches. They game planned. They helped create the offensive game plan. And a lot of these guys as offensive coordinators, they called plays. That's what they did. And then on the other side of things, you think, oh, got to be the same thing for these defensive head coaches, right? Like they must call the defense. That is not the case. Only five head coaches in the NFL call defensive plays, which is quite different. And, you know, after doing the research into this, I am now a firm believer that these defensive-minded head coaches who called plays as the defensive coordinator should call the defensive plays. That's how these coaches get head coaching jobs. Okay, they do a great job as a defensive coordinator or offensive coordinator, which probably included calling plays, and then they land a head coaching gig. It's like, Jonathan, why, why, why are you bringing this up? Why does this matter? It matters because Sean McDermott is one of the five head coaches in the NFL who calls plays for their defense. This is the first year he's done it as the Buffalo Bills head coach, and it's working very, very well. He's become his best assistant. Okay, the Bills' defense ranks second in DVOA. Okay, they're giving up the second least number of points per game. They are fourth in passing yards allowed per game, and they are sixth in yards allowed overall per game. Okay, their defense has been much better than it was last year, and it's not like they've added a whole bunch of new talent. It wasn't like they went out and they added, you know, Chandler Jones and Max Crosby and Jalen Ramsey. Like that's not what they did. The big switch that they made. Their defensive coordinator stepped down. McDermott stepped up. He's also the defensive coordinator this year. And he's been calling plays. And that is the biggest change that they made. And he's been really good at it. And I was kind of surprised at first. I was like, wow, like Sean McDermott doing a great job. No, it makes sense because he was a defensive coordinator for over a decade in the NFL before he got his first head coaching job. He's done a great job. I mean, just look at what he did on Sunday. They stopped this rolling Miami Dolphins offense in its tracks, held them to 20 points, pressured Tua, got in his face the entire game. Even though Tua still had a nice day, right? Threw for 285 yards, a touchdown. He did throw an interception, though, his first of the season. And it's not even just that. Like, what he's, what this Bills defense has been through these first three weeks has been nothing short of outstanding. The one game that they lost wasn't because Zach Wilson tore them up. It was because Josh Allen threw three interceptions. This defense has been really good, and a lot of it is because of Sean McDermott. Back to the game on Sunday. As I said, they really limited Tua in this passing attack. Okay, Like I said, Tua still had a nice day, but nothing like what he'd done the first three weeks of the season. And they really limited this Dolphins rushing attack outside of a big 55-yard run from rookie Devon Achain, who's been really good for Miami since he got since he was drafted, since he started playing in Week 2. Coming into the season, there were questions about Sean McDermott. You know, I listen to a lot of sports talk all over the country. I listen to sports podcasts. Like, I don't listen to music. Like, this is what I love. This is what I listen to. All the time. It's probably not good for my mental health because I hear these people say things and I'm just like, why would you say that thing? And one of those phrases, one of those comments came in the offseason. Like right before the season started, someone said that the Bills should have fired Sean McDermott and hired Brian Dable when Brian Dable was set to leave. Brian Dable, obviously now the head coach for the New York Giants. Offensive-minded guy 
who hasn't produced a good offense this year in New York. They got thumped by the Seahawks last night, 24-3. And I just, I I love that Sean McDermott is doing what he's doing because there's just so much doubt about him coming into the season. Like we look up, four weeks into the Giants are 1-3 with talent on the offensive side of the football, I may remind you. And the Bills are 3-1, and one, and they look like they could win the Super Bowl. The Bills just might be the best team in the AFC. Um, I'm not moving off the Chiefs until I have a reason to do so. Um, I thought they were fine on Sunday night. You know, I, I know they only won by three, but if Mahomes had wanted to, he could have ran it in the end zone. They'd have won by ten. They would have covered. I would have made money instead of lost money. It's fine. Either way, McDermott's done a great job this year. Okay, The Bills... They, I wouldn't say that they were written off coming into the season, but it felt as if people were kind of tired of them. And then they crushed the Commanders two weeks ago, and then they crushed this Dolphins team on Sunday, as if like, hey, we're still here. And a large part of why they're still here is because of Sean McDermott. Okay? And I have all the faith in the world in him to figure out what they're going to do with uh, Tredavious White going down with the torn Achilles. Okay, like he's done such a good job so far this season that you can't question what he's going to do defensively going forward. Okay, he's been really good through these first four weeks. Sean McDermott been awesome. He's become his best assistant, and that is why the Bills are three and one, and they have a legitimate chance to win the Super Bowl for the first time in a couple of years. That's going to do it here at Shooting the Schmidt. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to listen. I appreciate it. I'll be back again on Thursday with another podcast for you. Previewing the weekend. Can't wait to get into it. Please come back, like, subscribe, do all those different things. And I'll talk to you all again on Thursday.